How is a soul satisfied? How can a human being attain true satisfaction and fulfillment in life? There's a lot of answers to those questions, aren't there, in this world? And there's an awful lot of trouble in the pursuit of those answers. Early in life, we tend to start along these kinds of lines. I will attain full satisfaction in my life when everyone sees me as I want to be seen and everyone does what I want them to do. Then I'll be satisfied. Well, a step or two into early adulthood and most realize that's not going to happen. Reaching this realization, and sometimes even out of great discouragement and emptiness of soul, reaching this realization that people are just not going to line up to help me achieve the life I want, many people seek satisfaction for their souls by escaping into fleshly desires, pleasures that are destructive, drugs, alcohol, sexual experimentation, just entertainment, even work to get themselves so lost in their employment that they see nothing else. The problem, of course, is that pursuing satisfaction in addictive behaviors of whatever sort simultaneously destroys vital aspects of our lives. Relationships are destroyed. Health is destroyed. There are recurring seasons of emptiness, at least when we come off the high. Better adjusted souls, it seems, typically come to the conclusion along somewhere along these lines, if I can envision the person that I want to be and then make progress toward the realization of that vision, then I'll be satisfied with life. And there are cultural industries that fuel such visions. Movies and magazines and video games and politicians and marketing strategies and the like combine to elevate some vision of this. Some self-assured, self-confident, attractive, strong, humorous, powerful, aggressive, self-sufficient mover and shaker. Along some lines... Some combination. There's so many variations provided for us. We can lock into some vision of this type of person. Some form of the superhero. And the message of the superhero, that this is our path to satisfaction, is that soul satisfaction, fulfillment in life, is achieved by being all that you can be. It's achieved somehow by realizing who you are supposed to be, who you want to be. The answer is in you. It's in self. And the result is a lot of disillusioned souls. Because looking to ourselves to be all that we can be, we find ourselves weak. I just don't become all that I want to be and all that I think that I should be. And I'm dissatisfied with life because I'm not becoming more of what I would like to be. 
There's a lot of dissatisfied souls because along the way are many people who block my quest. I get close to what I want of myself, what I want to achieve, and they restrict me. They stop me. They limit me. And so there are dissatisfactions that come into our soul like a poison. And there's this deep emptiness. And there is a chaotic world of individuals chasing this self-satisfaction in themselves. Seeking to elevate themselves to achieve what they dream. And to find nothing but disappointment. Let me ask you, what's the answer? How can a soul find full satisfaction in life? How would you answer that? Along the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth sat down with his disciples. And in a sense, in a manner of speaking, he said, let's talk about this. Let's talk about these questions. Let's talk about the fulfilled life and how you get it. It's very important that you understand. We find this conversation in Matthew chapter 5. Please make your way there as we look today at eight descriptions of a fully satisfied soul. These propositions are radically distinct from everything our world teaches on the subject. So this cultural industry of helping us discern how to be satisfied by appealing to ourselves or through some other means, through some other pleasures and attractions, it's all turned on its head. There is a grand canyon between the self as superhero that our world envisions and the truly satisfied soul, Jesus says, you've got to get this. You've got to learn this. Taken together, these propositions teach us that the way a soul finds full satisfaction in life is by attaining the approval of God which then flows with His abundant, all-sufficient, and eternal provision. Our souls are made to find their fulfillment and their satisfaction in the approval of God, which when attained, follows in His pouring out every good gift according to His sovereign plan. When we walk in God's approval and thus gain His abundant provision, this is a state that Jesus calls blessed. A state of blessedness. The abundant life God created us to live and Jesus came to secure for us is, in abbreviated term, blessedness. Matthew Chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, you'll notice there at the start of each verse is that word, blessed. Blessed, referred to traditionally as the Beatitudes. We, I'll refer to it perhaps a few times that way. We're just how we traditionally know this section of Scripture. The Beatitudes from a Latin word, beatus, meaning blessed. It's a word we don't use a lot. Uh, we, we hear it once in a while. I'm very blessed. 
says an individual. And we know that means profited, good things are happening, life is good on some level. But I I think the word in some sense really defies definition. But it speaks of the idea when we bless God, we approve of Him. We exalt in Him. And we raise our soul to Him. When He blesses us in a condescension of grace, He approves of us. A few general observations about these Beatitudes before we begin to work through them individually. As you work your way down through the text here and you see blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, that might strike us as there's groups of people. There's categories of individuals who are being classified here by their personality. Do not think like that. These do not describe separate categories of disciples. They form an interlocking chain of qualities that every follower of Jesus should be pursuing. Secondly, none of these traits we'll find comes naturally to us due to our sinfulness. Something else is going to happen besides just sitting there and letting it take place. Thirdly, Jesus Christ epitomizes these character traits, save the first, because He did not have sin. But to attain the soul satisfaction of the Beatitudes is to live a life with the orientation that Jesus had. It's to adopt His orientation, His character, and to pursue it. Number four, while later revelation helps us understand the Beatitudes, we should not read them through the lens of the epistles. Now, we are benefited by the epistles. We stand in a place of great privilege when it comes to understanding what Christ desires of His people because we stand on this side of His death and resurrection. But, for instance, we don't want to take the word righteousness... To mean the righteousness of Christ imputed to us as an accomplishment of His death and resurrection in our place. Jesus would have understood this, certainly, but these first readers did not. We'll take that more generically. But again, remember what a privileged position we have as we look upon this teaching to know Christ crucified and risen and the indwelling of the Spirit of God that enables us in a way that was not at this particular moment entirely available to the followers of Jesus. A fifth observation is that the Beatitudes are not a list of how we earn eternal life. They are descriptions of how a true follower of Christ will strive to live. The first effect is that they will drive us in repentance to Christ and then they serve to instruct forgiven sinners how to live in obedience to Christ. Now all that preparation, it's going to come with you. Even if you say, I can't keep them all straight. It'll just come with us. It'll come with us through. But just getting the thought in our mind is helpful as we enter into these Beatitudes. The setting, verse 1, is the crowds who He went up on the mountain seeing them. And when He sat down, the disciples came to Him and He opened His mouth and taught them. Again, opening His mouth is a figure of speech, meaning meaning that the speaker is poised to utter weighty, even courageous words. So Jesus teaches us the character of a disciple who gains God's approval and secures His abundant spiritual provision. And He does so coming up onto a mountain. I mean, our pulse should quicken right there. 
A mountain. Sinai. Things happen on mountains. Gerizim. Remember where the, on Mount Ebal, the gathered Israelites newly in the promised land speak out the curses of the law on Ebal. And on Gerizim, they speak out the blessings of the law. Blessed is the one. So Jesus on a mountain here speaking the truth of God. We stop. We listen. We learn. And right out of the gate, the superhero image is crushed to powder. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think Jesus speaks here of those who are financially poor necessarily. But in the spirit of the Hebrew Scriptures, people who recognize their abject spiritual poverty before God, they realize that they are bankrupt in their inner being. Here is blessedness. Here is the approach to satisfaction of soul is to know that you've got nothing. When it comes to your inner being, when it comes to your inner spirit, you realize that you are empty I am totally unworthy of God's favor. I have no moral value or good deeds sufficient to earn His commendation. The Spirit is one that says, I fall desperately short of glorifying Him. I am a sinner who has violated God's law and I deserve nothing but His judgment. This is the spirit of Romans 3.10. No one is righteous, not even one. Now this is not a spirit of self-loathing, of false humility, of self-pity, but of true, honest, repentant acknowledgement that I deserve nothing but God's judgment. I come to Him in abject spiritual poverty of spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are those who realize that they are then utterly dependent on God for salvation. The poor in spirit might be illustrated by, let's say that you are walking a tightrope with an acrobat across Niagara Falls. You don't have a lot of training here and you know you're not going to make it. But you get on this rope and you begin to work your way across Niagara Falls, inching across, absolutely frightened to death, and the inevitable happens. You begin to lose your balance and you reach out in desperation for this skilled tightrope walker and you grab his hand, crying out, seeking to gain that balance. In that moment, you are lost without this aid. You don't bring anything to the equation. You're not contributing to getting across Niagara Falls on this rope. You're in desperate need. That may illustrate one who is poor in spirit before God. As I look within, there's nothing. As the songwriter put it, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul, vile, 
I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Or I die. I need you. I've got nothing. That's the spirit of one who is satisfied. Blessed is one who is poor in spirit. Such people, verse 3 says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the provision, the promise of God's provision. In this blessedness, attaining this approval from God that we come to Him in desperation and in need with nothing in our hands to present to Him to gain His favor. He gives us the kingdom of heaven. We see the present tense here. Certainly includes a present aspect. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And obviously, in the context of this sermon, a future aspect. There's great wonder in this. I deserve the wrath of God, but I am an heir of Christ's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not necessarily those who grieve the loss of a loved one. The idea is those who mourn in context their spiritual bankruptcy. I can admit that I'm spiritually bankrupt, but really not care a whole lot about it. But here we are to seek Christ and we are to seek soul satisfaction by mourning about our sin. Those who mourn are grieved by their sin. They don't just accept it. And those who mourn are grieved by the sin of a world that is hostile in its rejection of God. The satisfied soul, our world insists, is what? It's one that parties. It's one that finds entertainment. It is one that laughs. The follower of Christ is not marked by self-pity or a morose, long-faced, somber negativity. Let's make it clear. But we do bear a heavy weight. We bear a sensitivity to our own sin. We bear a sensitivity to a rebellious world against Christ. We bear a sensitivity to the realities of death. And we recognize as Christ's people that there are people going into eternity to judgment. There's a weight that we bear. And we cannot be relieved of it in this life. Such realism leaves little room for giddiness and silliness and cavalier stupidity. Let's picture it again. You're able, imagine, to travel back in time. You don't pick the place, but you find yourself on the deck of the Lusitania in New York City as it's making its way from New York to Liverpool, and you find it's May 1915, and miraculously, your cell phone comes with you, so you're able to look this up and say, how's this going to go? And you find out it's not going to end well. It's going to be sunk by a German U-boat right off of Ireland. Just think of the spirit you bring. Now, you can't tell anybody. You can't change history. You can't do anything about it. You open your mouth to say something and no words come out. You just look like an idiot. You're not going to change history. But just think of how you make that journey. Can you eat? Yes. Can you enjoy the sea from the deck 
of the ship? Yes. Can you live life and meet people and enjoy yourself to some degree? You can, but knowing that 1,200 people are soon to die on this ship, there's a certain weight. There's a certain spirit that you bring with you on this journey. That's us. As the followers of Christ, we recognize, we mourn because we know we're on a sinking ship. It's going down. And many people are going into a crisis eternity. And that has an effect on my spirit and the way that I relate to God and the way that I relate to a lost world. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones in his classic books on this topic says it well, gets the right balance here. He says of the Christian, the one who mourns in spirit, he says he is a sorrowful man, but he's not morose. He's a sorrowful man, but he's not a miserable man. He's a serious man, but he's not a solemn man. He's a sober-minded man, but he is not a sullen man. He is a grave man, but he is never cold or prohibitive. There is with his gravity a warmth and attraction. The joy of the Christian is a holy joy. This is worth the price of the book. The happiness of the Christian is a serious happiness. Just to illustrate again, you're on this ship. You know it's going down. You meet people. You laugh. You enjoy their presence. You hear their stories. But there's just a different way you travel. And so in this life, we travel a different way. And I wonder... A church where you absolutely never leave a sermon sobered by the realities of sin and hell. You never leave sobered by your sin. You never leave sobered by the world's sin. You never leave sobered by pending judgment. I think Jesus abandoned that church a long time ago. He says, blessed are those who who mourn. There's a weight. And to them, He promises this provision then. They shall be comforted. There will be personal forgiveness of sin that is realized. I have no idea how it works in eternity, but somehow God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Satan and sin and the curse will be gone and we will mourn no more. Revelation 21, verse 4. Those who do not mourn the horrors of sin now will mourn forever. But those who do mourn the horrors of sin now will be comforted forever. This is blessedness. This is satisfaction of soul. Number three, blessed, verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. This, I, if there could be a different English word, it would really help us all out. We just cannot define this word. And the, the idea that pops to mind for every one of us, even for those who studied the Greek word at some length, it just seems to come across as something other than what it really is. But let's work through it for a moment. The meek, the meek soul is not a pushover is not a doormat, not an indecisive person or insecure or even a super nice person. 
That's not a meek person. Meekness is controlled power. It is power controlled by a proper self-understanding and a proper humility. It's, a spirit of, it's the spirit of those who know they are sinners and do not insist that others treat them as if they are not. Meekness shows the self-control to suffer wrong without retaliation and to keep quiet rather than fight for one's reputation and privilege. You want a picture of meekness? Moses, the Scripture says, the guy that broke the tablets of stone in anger. That's meekness. The meek guy, at least. Jesus, clearing the tables, turning them over in the temple area, driving people out, was the meekest of all people. Meekness is the concert pianist trained at Juilliard who claps at a grade school piano recital and praises the students afterward, never revealing her expertise. That's meekness. Meekness. You're the second car in line at a traffic light. The light turns green and the guy in the car in front of you is distracted and isn't moving. As you go to lay on your horn and wake this guy up, you realize out of the window comes this arm with rippling muscles covered in tattoos. As you take a look at him, he clearly is connected to a gang and he's clearly a lot stronger than you are. Why do you not lay on the horn? Your motivation is fear, or at least good sense, right? Or you just tap the horn to help him out, right? Now, change the picture. You're the second car in line. The light turns green. The car does not move. And you take a good look at the driver in front, and it's a 16-year-old girl who's on her cell phone. You don't lay on the horn. What's your motivation? Meekness. You tap it to help her out. That's meekness. We're big enough to choose grace. We're big enough not to insist upon our rights and our reputation. We're big enough by God's grace to walk around in grace. The meek do not insist on their way. And they do not expend their authority or strength so as to intimidate others. They know themselves to be greater sinners than other people realize. And so they do not seize with anger when they are opposed. The meek will inherit the earth. The new heavens and the new earth are probably here in view. This earth is theirs. They don't need to get uptight. In their blessedness, this will be their world, serving under the authority of Christ. If you really believe that, why get uptight about the person causing you inconvenience or failing to respect you? 
There's a bigger world coming. And you're part of it. Verse 6, number 4, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We realize our abject spiritual poverty. We mourn our sinfulness. We do not insist on our rights or press our reputation because we are humbled by who we are. This does not mean that we hang our heads and withdraw from life. Okay, I see who I am and that's all there is to it. But rather, we turn this into an active pursuit of righteousness. We hunger and we thirst for it. This is not a hunger for the imputed righteousness of Christ as such, but more generally, living in obedience to God's will. I long to do that. I want to do what is right. There's a hunger and a thirst to obey the Lord and to follow Him. This is Jesus' follower. And the promise that He gives is that they will be satisfied in the kingdom of heaven. The full, eternal satisfaction of soul, but certainly now there is a satisfaction of some sort. Sin forces us, however, to remain hungry. But a day will come when we will live in perfect and eternal conformity to the will of God. William Hendrickson provides this gem. Hear this word. He says in this context, God never made a soul so small that the whole world could satisfy it. That's beautiful. God never made a soul that is so small that the whole world could satisfy it. Only God can satisfy our soul. Only God. There may be a few here today, that's a revelation to you. You're not thinking about life that way. You're not going about life that way. You're thinking that you will find satisfaction in yourself, satisfaction in others who cooperate with your plan, and it just isn't really the way you think about life that the satisfaction of my soul is found in God alone. Because your soul's way too big. Made in His image. It's way too big to be satisfied even with the whole world. You could be given absolutely everything you want and come to realize you want nothing you have. Only God can satisfy your soul. If you're looking elsewhere, you're empty. And you're getting more and more empty. Hungering and thirsting to walk in obedience and faithfulness with God, that will be satisfied. God will satisfy your soul. Verse 7, number 5, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy is the extension of compassionate assistance to those who are miserable and helpless. The merciful refuse to dismiss the sufferings of others. They are awake to their miseries and they extend care. The merciful seek to relieve the suffering of others. They don't run from it and they certainly don't gloat over it. They see a needy world, they walk into it, and they seek to be merciful, to relieve the miseries of this world. And those who are merciful, verse 7 says, here's the provision of promise, they shall receive mercy. I don't think that means they've earned mercy, but those who have received the saving mercy of Christ will surely show it and surely receive it in fullest measure. 
in eternity. The kingdom of heaven, we learn in Revelation 21 and verse 4, every tear will be wiped away. And death and mourning and pain will be gone. Those who take on the work and the inconvenience and the messiness of mercy are those who are destined for a kingdom that showers eternal mercies down upon its citizens. Number six, verse eight. The followers of Christ, the blessed life, the satisfied soul as one who is pure in heart. Pure in heart. Now, you've got to make a choice here. You might follow me. You might not. I'm working through this myself. But if we take, see a divide at 1 through 4 with 5 through 8, that 1 through 4 deal primarily with our focus on our relationship with God, then secondly, Beatitudes 5 through 8 seem to focus on our relationship with others. But what about pure in heart? That doesn't seem to fit. It's quite easy to see merciful, peacemakers, and persecuted. But what about pure of heart? If we take that contextual key, it may be that the pure in heart is emphasizing a sincerity of heart in our relationship with other people. It could just be more generically a pure heart before God, but it might be specifically a sincere heart toward others. That is... Those who have the blessed life live in honesty in their interpersonal dealings. What do you love? What do you value? What do you think about? How do you view people and interact with them? And why are you motivated by ulterior motives, by deceptive motives? Do you think one thing in your heart and say another thing in public? Blessed are those who are pure in heart. There's a sincerity of the inner being as it flows out to others. For the pure and sincere in heart, the promised provision is that they will see God. The judge will greet such souls and embrace them. A pure, honest, real heart is the quest of all who genuinely anticipate standing before the judge of the living and the dead and hearing this, welcome. Number 7, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus was on a mission to provide peace with God. He amassed no army. He instigated no war. His quest was to reconcile man to God. And all who followed Jesus loved to reconcile people with one another as well as people with God Himself. The satisfied soul does not then gossip it does not stir up controversy. It does not agitate behind the scenes. It doesn't tear people down to destroy reputations so that war is sure to follow when the people who are listening get in touch with the people whose reputations are being destroyed. It doesn't fuel the fires of resentment toward leadership or toward fellowship. Rather, the, dis the satisfied soul, the satisfied soul communicates. It seeks solutions. It bridges gaps between people. It points all to the reconciling God. It models the reconciling God. Now, there are peacemakers who simply are running around avoiding conflict. 
That's not the idea. But there are peacemakers who are saying, I will be an instrument of the love of Christ and I'm going to do all that I can to keep people together rather than at war. For the peacemaker, they will be called the sons of God. Sons of God. Those that have a unique relationship with Him. Those perhaps who are characterized by God-likeness as peacemakers. We are identified forever as God's own. Number eight, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, as we work through this sermon, we have two destinies, two ways of life, two masters, two peoples. And there is great conflict that is to be anticipated. And so we would say that the way to being a satisfied soul, the way to finding fulfillment within, is to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you're a follower of Christ and no one ever objects to what you believe or how you live or what you don't do or what you do do, you have to ask whose side you're on. The follower of Christ cannot be popular both here and there, both in the kingdom of man and in the kingdom of God. We have to make a choice where our loyalty will lie. It's not meaning that we seek to be unpopular, but what is it that gets us into this trouble? Blessed are those who are persecuted, notice the phrase, for righteousness' sake. Because you are doing what is right, because you are teaching the truth, because you are standing for Christ. When you suffer because of that, you are touching the satisfied life. And God, it sounds to me like I'm touching a miserable life. That's tough. It is tough. But isn't it what's to be expected? It's not that we strive to be unpopular, but follow Jesus And the logic is really not rocket science. You're going to be opposed. He ended on a cross. He told us, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. No false advertisement. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So significant is this point in verse 10 that I think there's a clarifying, finalizing statement in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you. Satisfied. Fulfilled are you. Walking in the approval of God are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So blessed are you, verse 12, that you should rejoice and be glad For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's been no imperatives here. 
just how you ought to think about life. And it's almost like he can't help himself here. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. There is a much greater reward that you will receive than any suffering that you face for Christ. The persecution, of course, that Jesus has in mind is not necessarily imprisonment and torture and martyrdom, though it certainly includes that. You notice here that it includes those who say evil things against you falsely. Those who simply use words to ridicule. Even there, we are to rejoice and be glad because our reward is great in heaven. So it includes the kind of persecution that involves people ridiculing our faith or rejecting us as a friend or a co-worker. It includes the mockery that we face in the media. When I let the, have the media have access to me, which isn't very often, but when I do, there's times I want to throw something at it. It's so disheartening what they believe a Christian is. But what we need to train ourselves to think is to rejoice and be glad. It's an evidence we're on the right side. This is how they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Can you think... I honestly didn't think real long about this, but I can't think of a false prophet in the Bible that was persecuted. Can you? False prophets tell people what they want to hear, and people that are hearing what they want to hear don't usually want to kill the messenger, even to their own detriment. True prophets often tell people what they don't want to hear, and they get hit for it. When you're on the receiving end of that hit, rejoice because you're with the prophets. Those who suffered for God. Wow, we put this all together. I mean, it's amazing what Christ is saying here. It's amazing how countercultural He is. He's saying to us as His disciples that we are to be marked by characteristics that our world despises does not understand at all. What is the satisfied life? What is the fullness of blessing that we can receive in our soul and in eternity? It is this. Such people see themselves as spiritually bankrupt, unable to gain God's favor on their own merits, utterly dependent on God for His grace. That's the way up. Secondly, they grieve the presence of sin in their lives and in this world. They're oriented that way. That's the way up. They are so deeply influenced by the reality of sin and God's assessment that they deal patiently and graciously with others, not promoting self, but deferring in love and not expecting to be treated any differently than what they really are. That's the way up. With all their being, they long to live in faithful obedience to Christ. Obeying Jesus is their focus. That's satisfaction. They move back and forth through life seeking to relieve pain and suffering and lifting up those who have fallen into miseries. They seek to bridge gaps between people, promoting reconciliation and averting relational wars in every honorable way. That's fulfillment. 
They rejoice in, to suffer rejection and opposition because they are a faithful follower of Christ. They rejoice to identify with the persecuted of Jesus. That's the path to satisfaction. The Beatitudes just fit everything we know about Jesus and His teaching, don't they? R. Kent Hughes puts it well in a simple poem. This is Jesus' teaching. Last is first. Giving is receiving. Dying is living. Least is greatest. Poor is rich. Weakness is strength. And serving is ruling. He came to turn the world upside down. As countercultural as this instruction is, the true followers of Jesus know the instruction to be absolute truth. Remember the words of Chesterton. On the first reading of the Sermon on the Mount, you feel that it turns everything upside down. But the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel that it is impossible, but the second time you feel that nothing else is possible. The Sermon on the Mount is not a crazy message which our sane world cannot reasonably accept. It is rather absolute sanity preached to a world of lunatics. And our only response is those who are the followers of Christ, who have come to faith in Christ crucified and risen, is I fall desperately short. This is not a portrait of Dan Miller. It's not what it ought to be in my life. We come to that. We realize this. We're brought to our knees. But like Chesterton says, what else is there? the truth. It's the hope. We get up. We walk step by step, mile by mile until we meet Christ. Relying upon Him to change us and to help us think clearly and seeing His answer to prayer in gatherings like this where we talk about sanity in a world of lunatics. A world that calls us lunatics. And will change its mind when it stands before Jesus. Only God can supply the grace to live this way. But we must long for Him to do so. And I wonder, when we see this portrait of the follower of Christ, when we see this as the satisfied, fulfilled life that will result in the ongoing approval and the ultimate, complete, and total provision and blessing of God, do we want it? Is this how I want to look? To my friends? Is this how I want to look in the neighborhood, at work, among my unsaved family members? Do I even want this? We must see Jesus Christ as the image into which we are being transformed and rejoice, even when it means persecution. For those that are separated from Christ, whether you know it or not, the way a soul finds full satisfaction in life is attained by the approval of God. You're not going to find it in the pleasures of this world. You're not going to find it in yourself. And you're not going to be able to line up people around you that will bring it about. It's found in the approval of God. And it is found then, once we have that approval, 
we become the objects of His abundant, all-sufficient, and eternal provision. Let me make crystal clear, you do not earn this. You cannot earn this. You go about trying to live this way in your own strength without Christ and you will fail miserably and probably become very disenamored with Jesus. Gaining the approval of God is something that only Christ can do for you. And He has made that provision by dying in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of our sin. He has risen from the dead to defeat death so that mourning will end. But that approval must come where this sermon starts, where these Beatitudes start, by you coming to a place of abject spiritual poverty and reaching out in desperation and saying, Jesus, I need You. I need Your righteousness. I need You to rescue me from the judgment of God. I need You to grant me saving grace. It starts with the approval of God. And it flows with His never-ending abundant provision. We must run to Him. Let's bow in prayer. How humbled, Father, we are by the teachings of the Son. How humbled we are in the face of this truth. But we plead in Your mercy and in Your grace that You will enable us to want this. Those who know not Christ as Savior to want it to the degree that they turn to You in faith and ask for Your saving grace and for Your mercy in Christ, they desperately reach out to You today as if grasping for the only hand between them and falling into the depths of hell and judgment. For those of us who have grasped that hand and rest in the assurance and the provision of Christ, I pray that we would want what we should want. That we would want deep abiding, never-ending satisfaction and fulfillment of soul. That we would want eternity and Your ongoing provisions. That in wanting that, we would be driven to live as Christ has called us to live. Do this work in us. I ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.